everyone. Welcome to episode two of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald, Miami Marlins weekly podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson, and this week I am joined by a very familiar voice to those of you who have been on the Marlins beat and paid attention to the Marlins over these last few years. That's right. A former Miami Herald writer, former athletic writer, Andre Fernandez is joining me and will be with me just about every week. Andre, how you doing, man? Good to be in the co-pilot seat with you, buddy, and uh, good to be back. Glad I, glad I could be back. It's been, you know, kind of an interesting summer, but looking forward to talking with you and turning this into an um, informative and entertaining podcast for, uh, you know, for the listeners out there that are following this pretty interesting team that's been through a roller coaster of a ride, and, you know, let's see where it takes them now. Some interesting developments today with the trade, de- well, Monday with the trade deadline and everything. Yeah, definitely. Let's start right with that trade deadline. The Marlins made a couple of trades right before the 4 o'clock deadline, the biggest of which, I mean, Mr. Marlins' kid's back. I mean, that's got to be our biggest news, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, hold on, hold on. Player to be named later, right? We can't, we can't say his name. Yep. He who must be named, not be named. Wor- yeah. Worst kept secret ever. Worst kept secret ever. But in all seriousness, yeah. the Marlins got all-star, two-time gold glove winning outfielder Starling Marte. Uh, from the Arizona Diamondbacks, they traded away Caleb Smith, uh, Humberto Mejita, and I believe it was Julio Frias was the third was the third guy. He's also a player to be named later, so we could actually hold off on him. But the fact that the Marlins went out and made this move, Andre, just what's your initial reaction to it? I mean, I'm impressed because this is a team that, you know, we've, we've seen the roller coaster ride they've been on with COVID and coming back from it. And then they're, they could get off to this great seven and one start. And all of a sudden they're defying expectations and they're in the fight, not just in the fight, they're leading it. And, and, but then that's, they hit that rough patch. They can't win at home. And you're wondering, can this team sustain? Can, what was this second half going to look like? Are they going to fade away and, and, and start thinking completely about the future again? But with this, I mean, I, they really, you know, no pun intended, they hit a big one today because that's a that's a guy that can come in, you know, with, with experience. It's going to help those young players. It's going to solidify that outfield, which has been, you know, hit hard this year with everything going on. And when you talk about some of the guys that they're getting back just naturally off the COVID, off, off, off IL, I mean, this team, the lineup took, you know, got a big boost today. I mean, I know it costs some pitching, but it's guys that in the, in the end, in the long run, you give, you, you give up Mejia, who was a prospect, wasn't one of their top prospects, and you give up a guy like, like Caleb Smith that eventually wasn't going to be a part of the long-term future probably. So, in, and I like the fact that Mike Hill says it's not a rental because they paid a pretty good price to get him. So if they can not only pick up the club option, I know he's going to be 32 after the season's over, but you kind of want to see what you get. And if it's all good, you want to at least keep this guy around maybe for a little bit so you get some good bang for your buck there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, career 288 hitter, two-time gold glove winner. He's a middle-of-the-order bat, someone who can take some of that pressure off of a guy like Brian Anderson, who, as we both know, when he puts pressure on himself, it just it can start to snowball really, really quickly with him. And a couple of the younger guys. I mean, they've had Lewin Diaz up for a little while, Jesus Sanchez at the same time. And it makes it, when you have him and you have Corey Dickerson and Jesus Aguilar, when you add that extra bat into it, it just takes a little bit of pressure off of the rest of the group and it gives you that solid guy to put in the three hole or the four hole on an almost daily basis. And then I also want to touch on you mentioning with them trading Caleb with the starting pitching and what they have. The Marlins have finally are starting to get their full rotation back as well. I mean, Sandy finally came back off the IL. Pablo Lopez and Eliezer Hernandez seeing the strides that they've made. And then 
you see Sixto Sanchez come up, their top prospect, who finally gets his debut, gets his first two starts in, and really just starts living up to the expectations early. And then also you have Trevor Rogers, their number nine prospect, according to Pipe MLB Pipeline, who's had two pretty good starts as well, having to go up against the Mets and has to go toe-to-toe with Jacob deGrom on Monday while the trade, line, trade deadline stuff's unfolding. So you see the rotation that's starting to get there. Jose Urania could come back. Seven of their top 12 prospects overall are starting pitchers. So they were able to take away – they were able to have a little bit more comfort with – trading a guy like Caleb and a guy like Humberto, who, if this was a normal season, you probably wouldn't have seen them trade Caleb because you probably would have needed them for the 162. No, absolutely, and I think Sixto is the pleasant surprise. I mean, on, on another podcast I do, I made an outlandish prediction that he might be a rookie of the year if he gets enough starts, and, I mean, he's off to a good one right now. I mean, but that was the thing. You needed to add offense to this club because if not, I'm looking at Sixto, and he could deliver eight great starts and go two and one. Yeah, you know, or, or even like two and four or something like that, just because the run support wouldn't be there. DeGrom knows but something I, about that too. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you you look at, to, to, to follow up what you're saying about the rotation, and the pieces are starting to match, not just for this year, but even for the long-term future. And, you know, now you wait for the other guys like the Edward Cabreras to make their way up little by little, the Braxton Garretts maybe next season. And going back to the Marte thing in the outfield, the one thing that is going to be really intriguing to see is it's a crowded outfield when it comes to prospects. So if Marte does end up sticking around, how do you balance that again without blocking the way for some of those guys to have a shot at coming up? I mean, we know Blade will play probably in right field, but you, you put him in center. And remember, Brinson's been getting a little bit better finally at the plate. You know, you haven't given up. Obviously, Monte Harrison is still down there. And there's others that are on the way up. And that takes me even to, to Conan. I don't know where exactly in the outfield they would put him. But he's another one that if you look at him, he's rated. he was rated at 16th in the J system. And a guy who hit 22 bombs last year in low A, now obviously it's a low A ball, but another lefty bat that might play well down the road at Martins Park. And a guy who some believe would be ready maybe by next season to make a major league debut. So, again, all those little pieces that you're going to continue to develop. But at some point... You don't want to have too too many obstacles in the way there too either. So it's going to be interesting how they sort of balance that out. You know, going be going beyond these next thirty games. Yeah, that's been one of the problems or one of the things that the Marlins have been trying to figure out with the win now mode versus the okay, how do we keep the development? And you also, in terms of the outfield, you still have Corey Dickerson for another year also. So right. you might you could potentially see something happening depending on what they do with Marte. You could see some off season potential moves potentially. Flipping some guys, depending on how much you like what you see from the Jesus Sanchez's, the Lewis Brinson's, the Monte Harrison's. And don't forget, Gerard Encarnacion, he's got a lot of pop down there, and that could make another interesting spot. Plus, you have Harold Ramirez, and you have just a lot of things to go through. But one spot that they have a little bit more of an opening at now is second base. Because as you mentioned with Conine, the way that the Marlins were able to get him from the Blue Jays when they eventually get him and they were able to not call him, call him the player to be named later is because they sent Jonathan Villar, Villar to Toronto, which, again, that's a smart move. I mean, he's yes, he's been really good this year, nine stolen bases, pretty good guy on the base path, pretty good guy at the plate, but he's going to be a free agent at the end of this year. So this sort of helps with the dichotomy of the Marte trade being the win now, let's get into the playoff mode versus the VR trade with the Blue Jays of, okay, we still need to keep looking at the future. We need to keep building up the system, building up the depth. 
and finding ways to make sure that it's sustainable outside of when this two-month season comes to an end. Right, and that's the thing. That was like kind of like the catch-22 that you were looking at. Like, Are they kind of stuck where you don't want to give away too much of the farm and also add pieces for the now, and but not trade the core pieces that have been so you know vital in, in right now in, what, in this little you know solid start that, that they've been on. But that takes you to Isan. And now, mm-hmm. you know, if Isan can come back, we don't know what shape he's going to be in because he's been off so long, but you can at least get that half season at least of development for the guy like that, assuming he doesn't, if he comes in and he's able to at least be steady enough where they can keep him in there. And and that's big because you were looking at a, one of your top guys right now that you're, you're still your second baseman of the future and he was going to lose the whole season. Now he can at least salvage some of that by coming back and then you sort, if he plays well, you can kind of stabilize that spot a little bit too. And then you still have options. You still, that's the thing. With all these guys that can play different positions around the infield, you can move guys around, and if he's still struggling a little bit or he has to ease his way back in little by little, you have ways to, to take care of that too. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the versatility. I mean, John Birdie, you can finally bring him out of the outfield and bring him back to the infield, which is his natural position. You have Eddie Alvarez, still on Jupiter, who I was extremely impressed with during his first round up here. I know you probably were too, Dre. Yeah, uh, good old Eddie. Yeah. yeah. Eddie yep. the Jet. Eddie the Jet. And then, depending on what they do with Sean Rodriguez when he comes back from the IL, which, again, there are still a few guys that we have some interesting decisions that the team's going to have to make with the last 10 or so guys who are still coming back from that COVID outbreak to start the year. But there, it seems like the Marlins are finally, finally look like they can actually take advantage of an opportunity. Obviously, it's been 30 games and with a 60 game season it sort of compounds everything but the fact that they're going into September 1 in a playoff spot in a chance to contend and make the postseason it just it looks like the turning of the tide that they were hoping to start to see in year three before the entire year sort of went up in shambles and it seems like it this 60 game season has actually been able to help them expedite some of what they were trying to do this year yeah I mean even within this season this, this to me jump starts or has the potential at least to jump start your way back into everything like I was saying before I mean I'm looking at this team and I'm looking at the Braves coming up I'm looking at the Rays again I'm looking at the Yankees a lot of home games which is not a good thing for this team that's true they, they can't win at home and I'm looking like this could suddenly spiral big time and not only was today what, what's that not Monday I keep saying today Monday <laughs> not a good uh, a huge win in a really inconvenient situation to go up there and beat the Mets but this, these moves, again, they, they give you life again. And I think that, that now you have some pieces with which to potentially contend. It's still going to be a rough road, no doubt about it. You know, especially when you play those contending teams. And we're talking about World Series contenders that they have left on the schedule. But a guy like Marte comes in and it could energize everybody. And you've seen how Garrett Cooper has come back. It's only been a couple of games, but good signs there, you know, with the power, with the, the way he's been able to hit. And if, the, and if other guys pick it up if, if Dickerson continues to, to hit and Miggy you know cooled off a little bit but he might get going again and they get Aguilar back which was the big power supply at the beginning of the season again it's a team that can sustain and be and, and do something with this year and, and they took care of like you said they took care of bringing up another prospect didn't give away too much so the plan is still rolling as far as the, the future get ready for the greatest roast of all time the roast of Tom Brady a Netflix live event happening May 5th 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Yeah, now let's segue a little bit from this trade deadline, this moment, to what they did on the field leading up to the deadline, especially with what they did on Monday. Obviously, they're facing, they're, they had to go up to New York in between, on an off day in between two home series on one of their last two off days of the year. They go in, they're facing Jacob DeGrom for the fourth time this year in 10 games against the Mets, which that just in and of itself just is hard to fathom how things like that are able to happen. But in this the way the season unfolded, nothing really takes me by surprise anymore. And they go up there knowing that it's a tough situation, that a lot of the players, and frankly, manager Don Mattingly himself openly saying it, they weren't happy about having to go up there, do a, basically leave Sunday night after get after losing a 12-7 game to the Rays, fly up there, get there at 11 o'clock Sunday night, play a 1 o'clock game Monday while the trade deadline's going on play that game, and then just to immediately fly back to play two games against Toronto before going back on the road for another week. And even with all of that, they finally find a way to get to DeGrom, get that big sixth inning. Cooper, as you mentioned, only hits a 451-foot home run to start the rally. And I say only because of the fact that he had a 455-foot home run the day before. And they finally they took advantage of, the, of a bad situation, which has sort of been the MO of this team all year, having to go through every hurdle, every obstacle, always finding another challenge coming up after they finish through one. And they just find ways to keep themselves moving and keep themselves inside this game. I mean, I felt exhausted just listening to you rattle off the whole itinerary there. Imagine having to be on that plane, not be able to sleep much, um, face the, not just face, but face the Grom. No, I mean, again, we could look back at it and say biggest win of the year if this all goes well for them, you know, and again, it's a team that obstacle after obstacle. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was stupid by baseball to make them do this because you, you have a series at the end of the year with the Yankees in New York where you could have very easily, if the, if the game mattered, make it up then you know, mm-hmm. with the Mets. I mean, what's it to the Mets to just you know come over at that point, especially if there's playoff implications? Um, you know, or either stupid or maybe just a screw job to kind of stick it to the Marlins a little bit. You know, but uh, in but they they got over the hurdle, and now you know. We look at the second half, and, and they're coming home to face a Toronto team that's, you know, very much like they are, a lot of young talent, you know, has it has its hands on the wild cards, one of the wild card spots right now in the AL. Good series, and again, the, the, no, no let up in that schedule down the stretch. The Phillies are getting hot, and, and the Braves, Rays, Yankees, like we talked about before, are all going to be tough. And again, remember, after the two games against the Blue Jays, they have the off day Thursday, and then... That's it. And that's it. 20, yeah, 27 games in 23 days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seven-game, freaking seven-game series uh, crammed into five days there against Philly. They've still got doubleheaders with the Nats. 
Yeah, it's going to be brutal, and that's where you're going to need. You know, you look at the rotation right now, there's a sixth, a seventh, an eighth option they could plug in there. That's where all those guys are going to have to come in and step up to, to continue that role going down the stretch. Yeah, and with those guys coming back, I mean, they've already gotten, I believe it's eight of their guys from the COVID, from that COVID-19 outbreak back, Miguel Rojas, Jorge Alfaro, Coop, uh, Sandy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, just when you watched how the Marlins had to unfold everything, they've made 113 roster moves throughout the year. And the BF 500, what was your biggest takeaway of how they were able to keep themselves afloat? And what do you think is going to be the biggest point of focus as they go on to the final 30 games of the year as they start to get back to full strength? I mean, I think it was the way they pieced together the roster in the last minute there, you know, under terrible circumstances. I mean, you're getting guys based, especially this season, where you you can't really scout anybody, and you got to go on, like, secondhand and what people tell you about certain pitchers. I mean, especially on the pitching side. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mattingly putting in guys that he's never seen before, pretty much, or hasn't seen in a long time, that, to me, was the most remarkable part, the job that the scouting department did to be able to patch all this together, especially in that early going when you lost all these guys out of, I mean, all of a sudden and you're literally putting together more than half of your active yeah. roster to get on the field. That For them to continue winning there, how huge was that stretch? And especially because after that, that's when they hit that you know little bit of a skid there. Imagine if they had come out and not even won those five games straight after after they came back on the field. Imagine, I mean, they wouldn't be... We, today would have looked a lot different, possibly. No doubt. You could have seen, you could have seen them going completely the other route, you know, looking at the future, trying to get more prospects, that sort of thing. They don't, maybe they don't go after a Starlin Marte necessarily. So it completely changed the season when you're looking at the, you know, the two Josh Smiths, the Brett Eibners, you know, Lee Brandt. I mean, you name it, all these guys that people are like, who? And, and they're bringing them in. And they're not only bringing them in, but they're, they're playing, they're pitching well. They're, you know, they're playing well. They're bringing Logan Forsythe to trip in for a little bit. It was a patchwork job like you may never see before in a lo- or may never see again in a long, long time. And regardless if they fall apart in the second half, it's still pretty remarkable what they did. Yeah, and just to go off the name things again, you had the two Josh Smiths. I was really hoping for a Caleb Smith, Josh A. Smith, Josh D. Smith game, which obviously two-thirds of that's already out the window. You had the Moraine Moran situation. They're both on the 60-day IL now. You had Eddie Alvarez, uh, Olympic medalist. Just you see all of that, but... There are, as you mentioned, there are some guys, especially in that bullpen, which lost eight of its 12 guys to start the year. You see a guy like Brandon Liebrandt, who goes goes through Tommy John and playing indie ball in a league that has two teams just to get recognized and try to find a way to get back out there. And he looks like the guy who, again, he's had to do two different situations where he had to do the mop-up innings, and he still hasn't given up a run. Yeah. You have, uh, I've liked what James Hoyt has done. You see what Richard Blyer, a local kid who gets traded in, who he's held his own as well. And then now that you get Yimmy Garcia back and you have Brad Boxberger and Brandon Kinsler, obviously the Marlins were trying to get something during the deadline with to shore up the bullpen even more, and they couldn't. But the fact that they're get, they have some of these pieces that they brought in that have, that have been working on top of the guys who were already here and the guys coming back from COVID, it sort of seems like they're able to solve that problem a little bit, even if it wasn't exactly how they wanted it to unfold. I mean, I think they're, you know, they're putting the duct tape and they're sustaining everything so they don't sink and all that, and that was amazing. But that, to me, is going to be the biggest key as to whether this works down the stretch because I think they're going to hit a little more than they have with the addition they made 
you know, that starting pitching is going to be solid, but does this bullpen hang to, hold it together? You know, and not just Brandon Kinsler at the end, but I'm saying that that late high leverage, you know, guys right the, right at the end, those six, seven, eight innings, and, and in a lot of cases, the five, six, seven yeah. innings when they play those double headers. What are what are or five or six innings? Sorry, mm-hmm. what what are they gonna? What are those guys? How are those guys gonna hold up? And how does Don Mattingly make it all fit? You know, I mean, you know, we talked about Brad Boxberger, but now they get back. You know, guys like Ryan Stanek, where does he fit in? Yumi Garcia, in theory, could still be in that mix. You know, where does you know how does he perform? So they're it's going to be interesting to see the setup roles and how consistent they can be to protect these leads. You know, because we've seen the Marlins be aggressive and jump out in a lot of games, a lot of games to early leads. And we've seen that squandered a little bit at times too. So, it, not just Brandon Kinsler, but I, I want to see how this bullpen comes together. Obviously, they're going to have good nights and bad nights, but if they, the good nights can outweigh the bad ones, then you got a chance to, to back all this up and maybe end up grabbing one of these one of these playoff spots. Definitely. And now I think just to wrap this up here and get to the to one of our final segments here. Just we're at the midway point of the year. It's thirty games in. The Marlins are fifteen and fifteen. Just your thoughts on just some superlatives from that first half. Who were, to you, best uh, MVP? Who would have been there, the team's quote-unquote Cy Young guy? Who would have been, who's been that pleasant surprise for you? Who have been, just give me some of the individual performances that you think should be highlighted from what the Marlins had to go through over these first 30 games. Yeah, I mean, resilience, really, with everything that they've gone through, you know, and, and just, to, again, everything they've done to, put, to patch it together and stay afloat and, and, gear up for this run I mean pitching wise I'm gonna go the easy one is to say Pablo mm-hmm. because he's been so good in that rotation I mean you lose Sandy you lose Caleb at the time you lose you lose Arena, but he's putting up career numbers and he's healthy yeah. which is the biggest that's thing the big that's thing. always the thing I mean I worry that, that was, every simulator that we were, <laughs> that was run in the off season when we were all playing fake virtual baseball had him blowing out his arm and you know but Nobody say anything. Let's keep knock on wood. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Big time. But that has been to me the biggest uh, in the in the rotation. One of the biggest things is to see him continue to develop and and just look dominant out there. And hitting wise, there's been a couple of guys. I mean, I think Aguilar. You know, just from the power standpoint, to to really boost that lineup early on the way he did. You know, Miggy comes back on fire for a little bit, keeps that rolling. Corey Dickerson's emergence. Now, he I mean, started slow, mm-hmm. but to pick that up now has been huge as well. And that's going to be, that to me is the interesting part. The guy that I still am waiting for that hot run, and I think if it happens, that's going to get this team even closer to clinching that playoff spot is Brian Anderson. Yeah. Because he's the one long-term piece that you really look at in that lineup and you say, you've got, a, you know, a, a not, maybe, a, a, maybe if a gold glove third baseman, but a guy who maybe is a, maybe just a notch below a Rendon or an Arenado, but is one of the best defensive third basemen, but can that bat continue to come along? You know, can he, prorating the numbers down to a 60-game season, can he give you that sort of 20 to 25, what, what a 20-25 homer type season would be? Can he get hot down the stretch? If he does, then we're looking at a really, really potent lineup. And that was one thing really quick on Marte, the base stealing. I think mm-hmm. that, I mean, maybe he may not get you, you know, he may not be in the form he was when he was winning stolen base titles, but he can add a little bit to that speed element as well, and I think that'll be important. Yeah, and that helps, especially considering you swap, you're basically swapping him out for VR in the lineup, knowing that right. you're still going to get right. the stolen base production out of him. Uh, one guy who I really kind of want to highlight, especially after seeing him over the last week, 
you got to give props to Lewis Brinson for what he's done over these last yeah. this last week or so. I mean, he has hits in each of his last five starts through Monday. It seems like every time he hits the ball, it's hard contact, even if it's outs. And he just he seems more confident. And the Marlins really needed that from him, especially after he missed the start of the season. Granted, it was only three games because of everything with the team experiencing the COVID, the COVID stuff and having to postpone a week. But the fact that he missed the start of the year because he himself had to go through everything with the coronavirus before the season, he was off to basically, basically putting him at a disadvantage to start the year, knowing that this was the pivotal year for him after two really bad years after being traded here. And now it looks like he might be turning the corner. If he can, if he can start keeping, if he can keep that going over these next couple weeks and really start to show both, both Don Mattingly, Michael Hill, Derek Jeter, that he can be the guy that they originally thought they were going to get from him. That feels like it's going to be one of the really good feel good stories of this year that they, that the Marlins were hoping to see throughout this season. I mean, Here's the thing with Brinson, and we don't know if he's ever going to be 300 hitter, mm-hmm. hitting a ton of homers in the majors. We don't know if he's going to get to that. But this is a guy who has not hit at all, whether it was here or Milwaukee in the, at the major league level. This is the first sign that he's consistently showing that he might be finally figuring it out a little bit. Now, is there anything to go crazy over yet? Maybe not, but it is a good sign. It is a good sign. He definitely was the silver lining of that really bad series against the Rays. And if he can continue to build it, he's another one that, you know, if we can see that in the next few weeks where, you know, if they can continue to give him opportunities, because now with Marte in there, you got to find him some at-bats as well. But if he can, you don't want to disrupt that rhythm because this kid's having the best stretch. And that shows you how bad he's been at the plate. Mm -hmm. This is the best stretch he's had in his career so far. So you want to nurture that. You want to keep giving him the opportunity to continue to build off of that. And if he can, absolutely. I mean, they got to get something out of this trade for Yelich because... You know, it was not. It has not looked good at all on their side. So to finally see some kind of life from him is definitely a plus. And then if Eason can also, you know, now again, like we were talking about before, if he can get to you some production and at least salvage some of the season, it starts to at least salvage something. Yeah, that's again. It's going to be very interesting unfold over these last over these last thirty game thirty games in barely 25, 24, 25 days. Uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for episode two of Fish Bites. Uh, Andre, great to finally be working with you again. Looking forward to doing this again next week. And again, w- again, you're still at Fer- uh, Fernandez Andre C. Is that your Twitter handle? Fernandez Andre C. Uh, at Twitter, that, absolutely. And uh, great to be back with you, even if it's in just a podcast capacity for now. But glad to be working for the old uh, Miami Herald once again. <laughs> And, uh, looking forward looking forward to the rest of the season no doubt and then you can all find me on twitter at j underscore mcpherson 1126 thanks again for listening and we'll do this again next week <laughs>